This is a paid commercial program. Unless otherwise identified, the guests on the program are employees of or otherwise represent the advertiser. The opinions expressed therein are those of the advertiser and do not necessarily reflect the views and policies of CKNW. Welcome back to the program on a cloudy Saturday afternoon in downtown Vancouver. It's 2.14. I'm Sterling Fox, and it's a real pleasure to welcome two guests to the first hour of our program. John Carlson joins us next hour. But in studio with me right now is the Director of Policy, Planning, and Analysis with Water Services of Metro Vancouver. A pleasure to welcome Inder Singh to Vancouver Consumer. Good day. Good afternoon. It's great to have you with us, Inder. Thanks for coming in on a, on a weekend. Also joining us, UBC horticulturalist and instructor. Dr. Egan Davis is also in our studio. Hi, Egan. Hi, how are you today? I'm well, thanks. Good of you to join us. And Thank uh, you. We're going to open up our phone lines in a little bit, but we did promise we we're going to ask some of the basic questions first. Now, even before we get to water restriction, what you know, what's specifically in place right now, Mr. Singh? Uh, the obvious question you've heard, because you've been in this business a couple of dozen years. We live in a rainforest. Why on earth do we need water restrictions, we the people of the rainforest? Well, thank you very much, uh, Sterling. That's a, a very excellent question, and I'm very And you have anxious. heard it before several hundred times. I have heard it, and I'm very anxious to, uh, to provide that, uh, that clarification. Okay. So as I look out of our studio window here, indeed, it's, it's cloudy outside, and we're getting a bit of drizzle. And uh, this is a typical summer that we're, we're experiencing, where we will have uh, periods of uh, dry and hot uh, sessions, and we'll also have intermittent uh, rain as well. But there are periods when we can have extended dry summers. Usually August, right? Is that the driest month of a Vancouver year? It, it will vary. It could be in July. It could be even as early as, as June. But typically August is when it starts to specifically um, dry out and, and warm up uh, in terms of temperature. Okay. So we do get lots of rainfall. We can be pretty much guaranteed that we will have rain from November through till April. Mm-hmm. So I wouldn't be holding any barbecues during that, that period. But if it comes around to the summer... Uh, this is when we start to actually have quite a li- limited amount of rainfall. And uh, that's what we're actually talking about here. So if you go back and uh, look at some of our case uh, examples in 2015, there was literally not one drop of rain from the 1st of May to the 31st of August. And uh, that was clearly unprecedented. Mm-hmm. But we have uh, climate change. There's definitely signs of um, temperatures uh, changing overall. And we expect those drier periods in the summer to get uh, increasingly more and more prevalent as the years go by. So So is the practice then of restricting water across the metro Vancouver region an automatic because we have this cycle? That's exactly correct. Uh, We do not turn the restrictions literally on or off depending upon the current weather forecast. It's something that we have in place each and every year. Okay. And, and those restrictions are actually set up in such a way that they're gradual. And so what we have in place currently is what's known as stage one, and that provides a bit of a restriction with respect to outdoor watering, uh, especially lawns. And uh, that's where the current focus happens to be in stage one. And uh, also other irrigation that includes landscaping like trees, shrubs and flowers. And uh, it's not uh, in any way restrictive on any other use within and around the home. So that's the key focus is where the largest chunk of water is used in the summer, which is for irrigation. Mm -hmm. And we want to make sure that we use that water wisely. Well, we have have a, a, a unique situation. The rest of Canada has brown lawns in the spring and in the fall, and then green lawns in the summer. We have green lawns in the fall, spring, and winter. 
we get brown lawns in the summertime here. It's it's a very odd place, Egan, but this is this is unique to the the edge of the rainforest, isn't it? It is unique to the edge of the rainforest, but it's a perfectly natural cycle. Uh, the growth cycle for cool season grasses that we have here in this region are that they grow in the spring, they grow in the late summer and early fall, and they persist green through the winter. But it's natural for a plant to finish its vegetative cycle in the summer, produce seed, and go dormant. And so our turf grasses, by watering them through the summer, we're actually inhibiting the plant to go through its natural growth cycle. So if you look at grasses in the region that grow in the wild, like on a a Douglas fir rocky cliff bluff, then you will see grasses at this time of year and they're golden in color. They've gone to seed, they're reproductive, and they're dormant for six to eight weeks. And they will green back up again in the fall. And that's natural. That's that's perfectly natural. So how then are we messing with Mother Nature, Egan, by keeping those lawns as sometimes secretly watching out for the water <laughs> cops, nonetheless, yeah. uh, by extending the cycle beyond the normal lifespan of the plant? Yeah, and often we overwater grass. And by overwatering grass, you actually make the plant soft and, and it becomes more dependent on water. Because when the tissues are soft, they actually lose like the, a, a soft, juicy leaf that has been a succulent leaf that has been overwatered will lose more water through its tissues. It's just not hardened off. And the only reason we do it is an aesthetic one. There's an expectation uh, that, you know, started in post-war 1950s to have a green lawn. Mm-hmm. You know, you got the driveway with the car and the patio with the barbecue and the swimming pool and the green lawn in the summertime. And that's an expectation that we all understand as being normal. Right. And I think it's time that we changed our expectations for turf grass. And a lot of people actually point fingers at turf grass and say turf grass is bad and we should eliminate turf grass and replace it with gardens. And and I don't always think that's a bad idea, but it's not that turf grass is bad. It's just how we manage it. And the nice thing about turf grass is you can walk on it, you can sit on it, and you don't need to water it. You don't need to fertilize it. And there are some terrific species. They're, tall fescues are a grass species that we don't use, mm. but we should be because they actually require very little water, very little nutrient, and they go dormant in the summer and pop back again in September. We don't need to water grass. We don't need to see it green in the summertime. Well, listen now, Inder, despite the best professional advice to the contrary, most of us still are, have that sort of idyllic green lawn mm-hmm. scenario, courtesy of the marketeers mm-hmm. at the Grass Seed Company, Absolutely. among others. Absolutely. Uh, who are the biggest users of water through the summer season? Or, or maybe I, I should ask the question somewhat differently. Who are the biggest wasters of water through the summer season? Well, within the the Metro Vancouver region, uh, we utilize collectively, that's amongst uh, businesses, commercial industry, as well as individual residences, about 1 billion litres per day on average. And uh, that's throughout the whole year. And that could go up by 50, 60, even 70% during the peak summer months. So as I noted earlier, a lot of that is about 60%, in fact, uh, contributed uh, to residential. Mm-hmm. And residential, again, goes uh, to what uh, is being said by Egan. It's related back to outdoor irrigation and specifically lawns. And uh, therefore, it's very, very important to understand how much is required to maintain a healthy lawn. And as described, um, it's about an inch a week or about an hour, that's what's what that t- translates into per week in terms of how much a lawn needs to stay healthy over the summer period. Now, it may not be absolutely 
lush and green mm-hmm. uh, because that obviously needs a lot of fertilization. It needs a lot of additional water for that. And it also needs substrate that is ideal for it to maintain that condition. But one hour per week is all you need. And uh, that's where the majority of the usage uh, goes in the summertime. Interesting. Now, that hour a week, you're actually more generous than that in terms of the current level of restrictions of stage one because the individual homeowner uh, is allowed more than one hour a week currently, aren't we? That is exactly correct. Uh, The current allocation is effectively uh, two periods, and uh, it depends on whether you're an even or an odd home in terms of which day you're prescribed. Right. But uh, it's uh, one day in the weekday and uh, one of the weekend days. And uh, there's two opportunities per week when, as you've noted, uh, you really only need one. And that's really designed to provide more flexibility because not everybody keeps and carries the same schedules. And uh, also the timing is very important. And the timing for that um, opportunity is in the morning because that's the ideal time to to water uh, vegetation, etc., is in the morning hours. And so the restrictions actually uh, keep watering within a period of 4 a.m. to 9 a.m. Oh, okay. And that's just, uh, Egan, from a horticultural point of view in terms of the benefit to the plant, that day part, the early morning, is the most beneficial. Yes, if you water at night, in fact, you can uh, create the conditions for diseases, pathogenic diseases, fungal and bacterial diseases, so it's beneficial. You lose a lot of water in the afternoon through evaporation, and and it's also windy, and so you get uh, mist that blows off of the target and possibly lands on the street or Un, you know, untargeted areas. So the morning is the best time. Okay. What about golf courses? Do they get special permits in deer because they use more water more routinely than the typical homeowner would? Well, golf courses are depending on what stage of restrictions you happen to be in. So within uh, the stage one area, it's actually not specifically prescribed that way in terms of any particular restrictions. Okay. But when you get into additional advanced stages, and that again depends on how the summer is actually uh, panning out with respect to our inflows that we get from rainfall, at that point in time, if uh, golf courses which have extensive irrigable areas require to be watering outside the normal periods, then at that point uh, there are water use plans uh, that would have to be uh, put into place, which are essentially permits that are acquired uh, through the, the the municipalities. Okay, and uh, for a fee, I'm assuming as well, right? That is correct. Yes. Okay, well, you got you to get, get what you pay for in that case then, right? Before we came on, Egan, we were talking over a coffee just a few minutes ago, and you were saying a lot of people are under the mistaken impression that in order to grow anything, you just really need, I'm using your expression, you just need to pound it with water. <laughs> that's what I said. <laughs> and, 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 and I said, well, that's, that's kind of, we always keep a lot of water close by because that, that's going to make the corn uh, taste sweet on the cob and all that stuff. Mm-hmm. But you said, no, water isn't half as important as a lot of people seem to think it is. People obsess about mm-hmm. water. Absolutely. Uh, Applying uh, water to a garden, to me, is an indication that plants aren't established, that you've chosen the wrong plants, that the site preparation isn't done. We teach good horticulture at UBC Botanical Garden, and the goals of good horticulture are to create systems that do not require intervention. And intervention can be pruning or fertilizing and water. And it drives me crazy to see the amount of water that we put on the landscape. It actually, when you water a landscape... 
you uh, trigger weeds growing, mm. and so that creates work. You make plants grow more than they should, so you've got to prune them, and so less water can actually reduce maintenance all around. What about from a gardening perspective, though? Because plants like mm-hmm. tomatoes yeah. and others do require water because they're mostly water-based in the first place. If you want nice, juicy mm-hmm. tomatoes, you've got to water the heck out of them. Absolutely, and so it's important to understand how to water plants. Food plants, for example, if they're shallow-rooted like lettuce, if you let them dry out for too long a period of time, they can die quite quickly. Yeah. So, But they don't need water very deeply because they have shallow roots. So for a lettuce plant, you might just be 10 minutes twice a week. But right. for a tomato that has deeper roots, you want to actually push the watering cycles and stretch them out to a week or 10 days. And that allows the roots to develop deeply. And you want to get the water deep into the soil so that, you know, that deep-rooted plant will grow deeply. And plants with roots deep in the soil actually pull up water. The surface of the soil dries out in the sun in a day. Sure. So you want the roots to go deep. If you water too much, you force roots at the surface of the soil and the plants actually become more dependent on water. Because their roots are at the surface. Gosh, I'm taking so many notes mentally here, Ender. <laughs> we got some tomatoes coming along right now. Those little cherry guys are just starting Excellent. to turn color. And, mm. you know, it, 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 just, you're careful with the water with that. You want them mm-hmm. to work. Uh, you're a director of policy and planning uh, and analysis. So let's talk, we're going to talk about planning a little more and, and the sort of future think that you have going on at the Metro Vancouver Water uh, uh, Department. How many years ahead in terms of planning, Inder? Are you looking right now? Well, we have um, various ranges of planning that we look after. Uh, we have a very well-defined 10-year cycle with, re- with respect to the growth within the region and what specific pieces of infrastructure, whether it's uh, water mains or pumping stations, additional reservoirs that are required within that period. Then it becomes a little bit more difficult because there's a lot of other variables that factor in, in terms of demands and uh, where the weather is going. Welcome back to the program. It's Sterling Fox, joined in studio by the Director of Policy, Planning and Analysis with Water Services of Metro Vancouver. A real treat to have Inder Singh with us in studio. Also joining us from the UBC Horticultural Department out there at the Botanical Gardens is Egan Davis. Now, back to you, Inder Singh. Just before we took the break, I got to tell you, friends, this conversation did not stop during the news. We just carried on and we got to turn our mics back on now. But Andrew, you were just talking about your part of one of your mandates is policy and planning. So combine the two as we look to the future in Metro Vancouver. And one of the things that we talked about is the immigration factor. Our population grows consistently by at least 30,000 people a year. And that, of course, adds to the demand on our resources, including natural resources like water. So as the director of policy and planning for the water types, how far ahead of us right now are you thinking? And what's the biggest problem you're looking at? Yes, uh, we're looking well into the future. In fact, we have a 100-year horizon uh, looking at that population growth and also the implications that um, climate change will have over that duration. Mm -hmm. In fact, we're expecting some uh, significant changes with respect to how much water we're actually receiving through rainfall, which is um, a significant component of where our water comes from. Sure, here. Uh, We we also have snowpack. So if you look at uh, that time horizon, about mid-century, we're expecting that the amount of precipitation that we receive in the summer will be about 20% less than what we currently receive. Okay. And in fact, the uh, the mountains, uh, which again forms the snowpack, which leads us into the spring and s- summer into the fall as well as a contributor, that was, is going to be potentially down by 50 to 55% uh, in, in another half, uh, another 30 years or so. Okay. And so looking into the long term, in, in 
conjunction with the 35,000 per annum of population that's coming to this great region that everybody wants to live in, mm-hmm. not only locally within the region, but also as you extend it out internationally, this is a very desirable place to live. Sure. And uh, we don't expect that that's going to change decade over decade. And so we have to be prepared for that. So how so, do we do that? We have, we have how many reservoirs do we have now? And I should also ask you, what's the status? Are we full, half full? What's the story there? Excellent. Uh, we have three primary reservoirs. Uh, they're named the Capilano, Seymour, and Coquitlam Reservoirs. Okay. Uh, they're up on the North Shore Mountains in the district of North Vancouver region. And um, we've been very fortunate uh, in our forefathers have kind of come up with this concept of having protected watersheds. And it's very unique to the Metro Vancouver area to have such a large area of watershed captured within an urban area that's uh, relatively pristine compared to uh, a lot of other places. So that's uh, a blessing, effectively, mm-hmm. that we need to cherish. But with respect to its longevity, yeah. uh, we are getting to the point where the capacity of those to service the population, which currently is at 2.5 million, and uh, we expect another million people, if you take that 35,000 per year up to about uh, 2050 or so. And so the location or the options to get more water, there's a number of different ways of doing that. It's not always just about going for additional supplies. That's important. You have to keep up with growth from that perspective. That would mean finding more reservoir capacity in, in the outback beyond North Vancouver kind of thing. It's a combination of things. It would be either finding uh, additional opportunities within our current water supply watersheds, and uh, those are Capilano, Seymour, and Coquitlam. Right. We could look at additional sources of, of water within those areas, raising existing dams to acquire more storage, or we could look outside for other alternatives. Okay. And there's lots of them. So we have lots of options there. Lots of options which have to be determined into the future. And so conservation is a key component that I always like to to get back to is that we want to make sure that we use water wisely at all times. That will allow us the opportunity to make sure that the capital investment that goes into construction of these very large uh, facilities when it comes to water storage, uh, we're talking not hundreds of millions, we're even talking billions of dollars. And so from that perspective, it's a combination of the two. Plan for growth, plan for additional infrastructure, at the same time collectively work as a region that starts with Metro Vancouver as the regional supplier of water, but then it also gets distributed on a retail basis through all of our our member municipalities and local governments that obviously share in uh, providing service to the individual customer. Right. A couple of websites to recommend to you based on this conversation this afternoon, friends. One of them I'm looking at right now, and this is yours, uh, Mr. Singh, from uh, Metro Vancouver. Uh, We love water. .ca will get you right to it. Or you can go to the Metro Vancouver site and spend 15 minutes trying to find it, <laughs> which I did. The short way is welovewater.ca. And there's all sorts of great stuff. And it's a very informative, user-friendly spot where our water comes from, conservation tips, lawn watering regulations, in case you have forgotten, however conveniently. And also, our other guest, Egan Davis from UBC uh, and the uh, Botanical Gardens, has uh, recommended uh, Grogan. Green.ca. Tell us about that one, Egan. Yeah, the growgreenguide.ca is a terrific resource for homeowners, whether you have single-family residential home or if you live in an apartment and want to grow plants out on your balcony. Yeah, because you're all about urban farming, aren't you? That's one of the absolutely. classes you teach yeah, absolutely, there. absolutely. And so the growgreenguide.ca has ideas for plants and recommends plants that require less water. It has some planning ideas that you can uh, be take inspiration from, or you can...
you can basically follow like a recipe, like paint by number. And so there are different size garden beds that have recommendations and containers. And that includes food and shrubs and trees. So it's a really good resource and lots of information, uh, lawn alternatives as well. Okay, yeah, mm-hmm. we were talking about that, and mm-hmm. you've mentioned actual several several different types of lawn, mm-hmm. uh, types of grass that are more compatible with this uh, climate than Absolutely. others. Yeah, like the any fescue is going to be better than our conventional turf grasses. We, we most of our lawns are perennial Ryan Kentucky Blue, and those are species that require more water than fescues, and specifically tall fescue. But on the Grow Green Guide uh, website, we also have uh, alternatives for turf grass. So ground covers that are low that can uh, tolerate some traffic that include plants like creeping thyme or uh, leptinella. There's a there's a blue star creeper. There's a lot of really great ground-hugging plants that you can use that don't require water, that don't require mowing, and keep that nice, low ground cover, basically. Well, so one, of the, one of the features that you've got is pick a plant. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, you have 356 particular Absolutely. plant species, so yeah. uh, there's pretty much something in there for everything that's grown in, in Vancouver area gardens, and you can get all the, the inside dope on how to, how to best grow mm-hmm. them, and being water smart in the process. Yes, and these plants are recommended by myself and my colleagues at UBC Botanical Garden specifically for this region. And I will tell you that if you feel like you have a challenging area in your garden that you want to grow plants and you think you need more water, for every challenge, there is a, that's a niche where you have a palette of plants that is perfectly suited. So if it's rocky and hot and dry, that's a great opportunity to grow plants that like that. And I off the top of my head can think of things that you know, like lavender and rosemary. And a lot of the sub-shrubby herbs grow really well without a lot of water in those really challenging conditions. So rather than trying to fit something like a square peg in a round hole and supply water to make it work, pick the right plant for the right place. And the Grow Green Guide website is a really good way to do that. Okay, growgreen.ca. Growgreenguide.ca. Right, okay. Uh, Interesting. Uh, Back to the matter of planning and future. You talked about our watershed and made it sound like what we have here in Metro Vancouver that we so take for granted is unusual in other parts of the world. It's non-existent in many other parts of the world. Tell us about it. That is correct. Uh, We have protected watersheds, as I mentioned, very close to the urban area. Yeah. And uh, really, what is some of the issues or concerns we have with regards to water? In addition, we're talking primarily about capacity and supply right now. Right, yeah. But quality is also a pretty significant issue. We have privileged that uh, our source water is not 100% perfect when it comes to it's one of the best raw water supplies out there within the world, if you look at it from an exemplary perspective. But there are issues with it in terms of meeting all the required uh, standards, both federally and provincially. But having that watershed protected is uh, a key component to making sure that the amount of treatment that's required and the costs associated with it can all be managed very efficiently. If you take an example of having to pull water out of the Fraser River as another option, Mm -hmm. uh, we have a much larger capacity of water that could flow down the Fraser that could be obtained for an endless uh, population growth within the region, within reason. But 
it's of a far different uh, quality than the source waters. Plus, it's at, a, at an elevation that all, would all have to be pumped as well, adding significant additional cost. Right. Therefore, we have these reservoirs located high within pristine mountain waters. So gravity does a lot of the work and, and a lot of the heavy lifting the, and saving us a lot of money in the process. Which is a very unique part of uh, the Metro Vancouver system is the majority of the year, water flows by, gra- by gravity to our supply reservoirs yeah. from where it's distributed to all the individual users. In the summertime, clearly we have to pump more because the capacity and the demand start to, to start to increase. And um, it's great that we have those protected watersheds and uh, we will um, obviously maintain them in that capacity for um, decades, if not perpetually, time to come. We're also quite proud of the quality of our tap water in most Metro Vancouver municipalities. Inder, who's responsible for what goes into or stays out of tap water? Would it be the city of Burnaby, city of North Van, or is that a decision made at your level at Metro Vancouver? Uh, the quality of tap water and uh, ensuring safety uh, to the public is uh, a very open, um, it's a joint responsibility amongst a number of different agencies. Okay. So if I was to break that down a little bit, uh, Metro Vancouver is responsible for providing the wholesale water, and we also look after its primary treatment. So that's our responsibility. It then gets conveyed over to each individual municipality and other jurisdictions that take water from us. They are the actual purveyors that will provide the water to the individual customer. Right. So they also need to maintain that quality through their distribution system and then make sure that when it gets to your particular tap and mine, that it's still of the same high quality that started off at the, at the source water location. And on top of that, we also have health agency representatives that sure. um, clearly are keen to look after our operating permits to make sure that we're complying with all the regulatory requirements. So a number of different uh, agencies are involved, and collectively with all these these mines working to uh, ensure the quality of the water, we get safe uh, safe tap water to uh, to the to the customer. Interesting, Egan Davis. When we're we're watering our plants and our gardens and our tomatoes, mm-hmm. I'm obsessing about tomatoes. They're, ju- <laughs> they're like just the tomatoes. about ready. Uh, uh, it doesn't matter whether it's tap water or uh, it doesn't. Uh, and of course, the rain is is uh, that's we get what we get. But mm-hmm. in terms of the hose versus uh, a purified water, any of that stuff, does it matter? Oh, it doesn't matter. Okay, didn't no. think so. But the you only have to thing, ask. Yeah, if you collect your own water, sometimes collecting water off of a roof can have contaminants. So it could be the roofing tiles or zinc strips to stop moss from growing. Right, yeah. And those can, can, you know, contribute heavy metals or, you know, other contaminants. But so if you're collecting water off a roof, that to me is one thing to be uh, concerned about. You use kind of some kind of screen or f- a filter when you're pouring from the rain barrel into your watering can, that well, kind of thing? A rain barrel is good. It's just if it does come off uh, an asphalt uh, tiled roof, that nothing will be able to remove the contaminants. So that's just one thing to be careful of. But otherwise, no, I mean. I mean, the, the source of, we were, we're so lucky with the quality of water that we have. And so uh, collecting water off of roofs is very good for uh, shrubs and trees. And, um, and for food plants, you want to be a little bit more careful about uh, sources of contamination. Okay. Um, and we were talking earlier, Inder, about uh, wise use of water. Rather than pointing fingers at big wasters, we should l- put a kind of a positive spin on that if we can and talk about being smart with water because that's a big part of what you do. Um, and, and so let's talk about some um, mid-August smart things. And I, it's going to rain this weekend. We get that and possibly beyond. But assuming that we're back to a pretty normal, pretty darn dry August shortly, how do we stay smart conserving water and yet doing what needs to be done? Yes, uh, that's important. Just getting back to what Egan um, was saying with respect to whether the 
tomatoes well like um, treated water or otherwise right. there is only one option all the water that's uh, distributed is all treated so we have to keep that in mind when it comes to all the different uses is we're, we're taking highly treated water that's uh, t- a lot of time and effort has gone into developing that quality and we want to use it wisely okay so if we go back into the summer as you've noted uh, there's lots of things that we can do uh, a key thing is to look where the major part of the water is being used which is irrigation so let's be wise with how we water our our gardens, our lawns, and do what's right with respect to what landscaping we have in place. Mm-hmm. Part of that is abiding by the particular regulations that are in place, and that's what they're designed to do. But we can also look at some other practical things, and uh, it saves not only water, but a bunch of other resources. If you look at um, showers, as an example, uh, they consume quite a bit of water. They and sure so do. If you were to have a two-minute less shower, I'm not sure how long you particularly shower for. Uh, my son, uh, he's listening, Sean, don't keep doing this, but he showers for about 20 minutes, and the which is absolutely right. unacceptable, mm-hmm. so he's mm-hmm. going to stop. But two minutes less per, uh, per shower means over a month's period, that's saving about 240 liters of water. Right. So cut back on showers when it comes to brushing your teeth and some other indoor uses of that nature. Turn the tap off, which is, which is clear. But use um, caution when it comes to, or discretion, when it comes to loading up your, your dishwasher, loading up your uh, washing machine to a, a full capacity before you actually put it on its, uh, its cycle. Right. Not doing half loads as an example. And um, if you have an older home and you still have these toilets, which is the largest consumer of water within the household premise, about 40% of all the water that you use inside the house actually is from flushing toilets. From that perspective, if you have an old antiquated one, you should replace it with two hundred bucks. Will get you a new one with which is using less than half the water of the old standards, yes, right? That's exactly correct. Uh, that is a long ways to go. And low flow fixtures uh, such as shower heads and um, aerators on nozzles all help uh, in- incrementally contribute to to using less water. And just going back to the outdoors again in the summer, one thing that we need to be aware of is rather than using water to wash your driveways, use a, use a broom, those kind of common sense things, and your car can get a little bit dusty, but lots of different things that we can do. Inder Singh is the Director of Policy, Planning, and Analysis with the Water Services of Metro Vancouver. Egan Davis is in the Urban Forestry Department at the University of Botanical Gardens, where he is a lecturer and an instructor. Uh, gentlemen, both, thank you for coming in today. A great opportunity. And let me just get those two websites. Egan, yours first, please. GrowGreenGuide.ca Okay, excellent stuff. And it's also connected with Metro Vancouver Water, isn't it? It is. It's a joint project between Metro Van and UBC Botanical. Okay. And last word to you, Mr. Singh, the website that you would recommend to our listeners today is? Is welovewater.ca. The proceeding was a paid commercial program. Unless otherwise identified, the guests on the program are employees of or otherwise represent the advertiser. The opinions expressed therein are those of the advertiser and do not necessarily reflect the views and policies of CKNW.